When my wife, toddler daughter, and I moved to Bangkok in 2014, I did not intend to become an advocate for persecuted Pakistani Christians seeking asylum. Yet, the Holy Spirit had other plans. Since first meeting these faithful followers of Christ at the local Catholic parish in the heart of Bangkok, I've spent thousands of hours in a Thai detention facility visiting poor Christians arrested by local authorities or overstaying visas. These are some words from today's guest, Casey Chalk, about the work he has done helping Pakistani Christians who've been persecuted in their homeland, usually fleeing to cities like Bangkok, which he'll talk about in today's interview, face grueling persecution, marginalization, times in detention facilities, exploited for labor, trafficked, the most horrific things you can imagine. Many of them are brother and sister Catholics. Uh, He tells some good news and some really lovely stories in our shorter interview today, but this is a topic very dear to my heart. I'll have some final words at the end for about this subject and other things we can do, but I think Casey has done some masterful work on this subject. Now to introduce Casey, he's one of those ambitious people. He's a contributing editor to the New Oxford Review, senior contributor to The Federalist and The American Conservative. He's also a frequent contributor to Crisis Magazine and Catholic Exchange for several years now. He has a BA and a master's in teaching and history. He also further got a master's in theology from Christendom College. And as I already mentioned, Mr. Chalk has been working very hard to help. Uh, He has worked really hard for Christians who have been stuck in the asylum bureaucracy, who will have to face years of torment to try to get to a place like the United States, Canada, Netherlands, nations that don't actively persecute religious minorities. Uh, As you can see, he puts a lot of his work and education to this, and I am really thankful he came on today's episode to talk about it. So without wasting too much more time, let's go ahead and start right at the interview. As always, stay back for a few more end notes at the end of the episode. Hi everyone, as you heard, I'm talking with Mr. Casey Chalk today, who's been writing at Catholic Exchange for, weirdly, a couple years now, because time flies very strangely these days. So Casey, I just want to ask you, as we begin... You have a new book out talking about the persecuted Christians in Muslim lands. How did you first come across this topic and what drew you to want to write about it? Yeah, sure. So the topic of persecuted Christians and particularly in Muslim countries is something that has been um, of interest to me and near and dear to my heart going back to when I was a kid. I was raised um, Catholic originally, but then evangelical for most of my childhood and my parents. It was something that they cared about, that their church um uh, talked about quite frequently. Um, but the immediate impetus for this uh, particular story that I describe in The Persecuted is based on the three years that I spent in Thailand with my wife and family from 2014 to 17, where um, even though I, I went I went there not to do uh, work related to <laughs> asylum seekers and refugees and persecuted Christians, um, we, very mu- we very early became connected to a number of Pakistani Catholic families that were at our local parish. English-speaking parish, and uh, I had previously served in Afghanistan several years before, and I kind of knew a good bit about Afghanistan and Pakistan, so they caught my eye right away. We started having conversations, Mm -hmm. and I realized very quickly that uh, I was face-to-face with a very large humanitarian crisis that had never really been reported, um, uh, certainly never been covered in a book, and um, had not really... Uh, elicited very much coverage in international media, only a couple of stories um, 
in the last mm-hmm. five, 10 years. Yeah, I think many, many Americans are surprised to even hear about this. I remember following the news in Syria leading up to the Civil War, and people were surprised there were still Christians in Syria. And I think that's most people's approach to even places like Pakistan or Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia. That's right. Um, although Pakistan's Christian community is very ancient. I mean, we're talking like 6th mm-hmm. century, and 7th century AD. Of course, many of the Christians who are there now um, don't trace their heritage to those early Christian converts necessarily. Many of them are converts mm-hmm. um, actually from the time of the British Raj when um, the British controlled the Indian subcontinent. Sure. Um, the Brits, although, you know, Protestant nation, uh, to their credit, they welcomed in missionaries of all stripes. So certainly there's a lot of Protestant and evangelical uh, Christian communities in Pakistan, but also a very sizable Catholic mm-hmm. one um, because many different Catholic orders, including the uh, the Franciscans, the Augustinians, were allowed to evangelize in what is today uh, present-day yeah. Pakistan. Can you talk about some of the data that went into researching? Uh, I know you have firsthand accounts, but what is some of the data that you can speak to this persecution that happens? Yeah, sure. So I believe last year, uh, something around 5,000 Christians were killed because of their faith around the world, um, mostly in Muslim countries, places like Syria and Iraq, like you mentioned, Michael, there are, um, you know, during the height of the power of the Islamic State, they were, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. basically trying to eliminate these ancient Christian communities, which are much more ancient mm-hmm. than the Pakistanis. And I mean, we're talking about, I mean, St. Paul himself, right, um, went into the desert in uh, in what is, you know, today uh, Arabia, right, like Syria and, and Jordan. Um, so uh, apart from that, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of uh, Christians around the world who suffer various forms of persecution. It's most acute in places um, like the Middle East and South Asia, where we have uh, Islamic governments, uh, governments that are explicitly Islamic, mm-hmm. their laws are influenced by by Muslim teaching and Sharia, um, mm-hmm. that uh, basically provide legal justification to engage in all kinds of uh, intimidation, aggression, and ultimately persecution of these vulnerable Christian populations. So, for example, it can be uh, stuff like uh, a church, churches not being, there's no churches that are allowed to be built in a lot of these Muslim countries. There's no missionary activities that are allowed. Um, that's the case. That's, that's, that's the law, for example, in Saudi Arabia and many North African countries. Um, but it can become a little bit more, uh, you know, aggressive and violent. For example, uh, blasphemy laws that exist on the books in many of these Muslim countries where if a, um, Muslim makes a claim that a Christian or really, frankly, any uh, religious minority has blasphemed against the Quran, Muhammad, um, Islam, that person can be brought before a court, tried and convicted of blasphemy. Um, this happened most famously to Azia Bibi in Pakistan, um, who she attracted quite a bit of international attention for being accused of blasphemy and was actually convicted um, and sentenced to death um, for having committed blasphemy. Another famous case is um, a, uh, a Governor of Jakarta, Indonesia, a uh, ethnic Chinese man um, who th- there was talk that he was potentially going to be running um, for president in the next Indonesian election. He was a Christian. He made a speech where he made comment of some extremist Muslims taking the Quran out of context. Ironically, uh, a extremist Muslim cleric videotaped that speech and then edited it in order to take him out of context and make it sound like he was committing blasphemy. And he also was acu- uh, formally accused, put on trial, convicted, um, and spent a couple years in jail 
uh, for uh, allegedly committing blasphemy against the Quran. Yeah, and it's unbelievable. Like you said, when you start really reading into it, on a firsthand account, you also, in both the article and the book, talk about the crisis and how it affects Bangkok, where you spend time. It seems like a weird place for asylum seekers. It's not one that would have come immediately to mind, especially for Pakistanis. How did this happen? Yeah, so Thailand's economy me, about 20% of it pre-COVID was based on tourism. Of course, that's not the case right now since a lot of travel is limited. Um, but what that means is, is that the ties made it really easy to get, to get into the country and get down to, you know, for example, a lot of beach resorts and whatnot. So um, Pakistani yeah. Christians and other persecuted peoples, even people who are suffering other kinds of like economic uh, privations heard about this. And certainly um, human traffickers heard about it. And so they would basically start persuading lots of people to go to Thailand where they could uh, sort of, you know, to some extent, live peaceably, disappear, maybe work on the black market local economy, and then apply for refugee status mm. with the UN, um, which many of them do. And certainly the Pakistani Christians do this. They apply for refugee status um, on account of religious persecution in their home country. Um, the problem is, is that mm -hmm. the visa that they get upon entrance into Thailand is only good for 30 days. So after that 30 day period, the Thai authorities can do whatever they want to them. And they do. They round them up periodically in raids in Bangkok and other major urban areas and then throw them into these really terrible and filthy uh, detention centers that are very unsanitary. Um, the Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a bad place to be. They're crowded. Uh, lots of people sleeping in the same room on, on concrete floors. Um, so uh, and a lot of people have died in these detention centers over the last several years. A lot of the friends that we, my wife and I knew while we were living in Thailand, were detained by the Thais and thrown into uh, what's called, it's called the IDC in Bangkok. Um, so we would visit them, bring food, medical necessities, that kind of thing. Um, there's a lot of allegations of sexual assault done by Thai police um, that run the detention center on um, yeah the, the detainees. It's a bad place. And then for those who have some sort of Western benefactor, like our friends, they're they, you can pay to get them out. Uh, at least when we were there, it cost anywhere from like fifteen to seventeen hundred dollars to get out a single person. So it becomes quite a money making enterprise for the Thai authorities because they can detain these people. If they have friends at their local church, they made they're going to pay the money and bail them out. And then I think they're given like a, a, a grace mm -hmm. period for I don't I can't remember what it was maybe like sixty days uh, to get things figured out. Of course, none of these people are going to get their situation figured out in 60 days. It, the UN application process for refugee status takes at least a year, if not two or three. So then the process starts all sure. over again. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really horrible. And, it, and we're talking large numbers. Pakistanis alone, we're talking between five to 10,000 people in Bangkok. That doesn't count people from all the other places in the world. We met lots of people from places like Syria, Iraq, Central Asia, Nigeria, mm -hmm. who are uh, in Thailand for similar reasons. Yeah. And you talk about in your book, uh, two particular Pakistani Christian families. I believe you used the names out Wilson, William, and Michael D'Souza. What's been their story and where are they now? Yeah, sure. So Michael D'Souza's story, um, well, they're both very powerful, but Michael's is the one that has attracted more um, international attention. Um, Michael uh, was, a, he's a devout Catholic, husband, father of three in Karachi, the biggest city in Pakistan. It's huge. I mean, we're talking like almost double the size of New York City. Um he did various jobs. He, I think he worked at a local school. Um, he worked as a courier for American Express there. He attracted the attention mm -hmm. of Muslim extremists, gosh, at this point, more than 10 years ago. Um, My gosh. And uh, they started harassing him. When his father died, they came to the funeral. They said, hey, we want to pay our respects, but also you need to convert to Islam. Michael refused. So then they started really hounding him, um, uh, encountering him when he would try to go to 
go to work or go to church. They started beating him up, threatening that they would abduct uh, his wife and, uh, and young daughter and marry them off to Muslim men. So this went on for years, and uh, the attacks became increasingly more violent to uh, eventually a state where Michael thought that he just couldn't live safely in Karachi anymore. So he took his family to Bangkok, um, where that's where I met him uh, in 2017. Um, while we were in Bangkok, Michael and his family were in the IDC on two separate occasions, the second time for almost a year, I want to say about 10 months. It was, it was really terrible for them. Um, and uh, eventually it got so bad that even the IDC uh, well, even Pakistan was viewed as a better option than the IDC. So my my wife and I and some of our family and friends agreed to fly him and his family back to Pakistan, where we we suggested maybe he could make a living in a different part of the city or a different town. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we paid to buy him a motorized rickshaw, like a little taxi, and uh, in, as a source of income for his family, his kids started going back to school. Things seemed to be going pretty well for several months, but then um, on St. Patrick's Day, of uh, 2018, some of the same Muslim extremists that had been terrorizing him many years before identified him, uh, pulled him over, pretending oh like they wanted to get a lift on his rickshaw. Uh, he stopped. They pulled him out of the rickshaw, beat him within an inch of his within an inch of his life, and then burned the rickshaw. Uh, Michael was in the hospital for a long time um, and lost his source of income. And to this day, Michael and his wife Rosemary and three kids basically live under self-imposed uh, house arrest in a suburb of Karachi waiting um for you know western uh you know anger and frustration of what's taken what, what's happened to them and uh and get some traction that would potentially get them out of the country his story i've, I've written a lot about it in numerous publications um it was even mm -hmm. briefed uh at a congressional subcommittee hearing uh several years ago um so and that and thanks be to god for representative chris smith from new jersey he was the one who um made sure to to vocalize that case um during hearings that you can find on youtube i provide the link in the persecuted for folks if they want to go and, and and see that um but yeah michael's story is is dramatic and uh and, and terrible but also not necessarily that unique many of the same things that happened yeah. to asia bb um, and some of the other famous cases, they happened to Michael, they happened to lots of other people um, every year in Pakistan. And from my understanding, this is obviously not my area of expertise, but from my understanding, it's not just Christianity, it's pretty much any minority religion can face this kind of ongoing persecution. Yeah, that's right. There is a very small Hindu and, and, and Sikh uh, population in Pakistan as well that um, also endures marginalization and oppression and, and the same kind of persecution. Uh, Something that's very common in Pakistan uh, is that um, young women um, will be abducted from their families and then married off to Muslim men. And since a, a Muslim cleric can provide the official documentation for this sham wedding, uh, the uh, the political the you know political and legal authorities will recognize it as legitimate. Um, and that happens mostly to Christians, but also to Hindu and Sikh girls as well in Pakistan. Horrific. The waiting process in for refugee status, uh, even when it's clear persecution is going on, can still take years. What could we who are listening to this and are horrified do to help speed it up and help people who are stuck in these situations? So the first thing I would urge people to do is to simply pray about it. Um, one, because mm -hmm. God really does take action. We saw that in the case of Wilson William, the other case that you mentioned, Michael. Wilson yeah. William, um, him and his family have also spent, I mean, about a decade in Thailand, uh, you know, waiting for their case to be adjudicated, but they were able to get uh, visas to the EU for him 
for his for him, his wife and his three children. He actually decided to stay in Bangkok in order to help the rest of his extended family um, with their application. So, um, I mean, that's a remarkable amount of virtue and courage on his part. But his yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, his wife and three children are are making a new life in the Netherlands, um, where you know they're learning Dutch and they're getting to worship freely and, and go to Catholic church and whatnot. Um, but I credit that that amazing uh, the fact that th- that happened to prayer. They, I mean, their mm-hmm. prayers make the Ramadan fast look like child's play. Um, so I I can't emphasize enough how important it is for people to pray, both just because God will act, but also we need to align our own hearts with our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering um, these kinds of circumstances. Apart from that, of course, um, financial um, contributions are always most welcome. There are many organizations that people can can give to um, and can actually feel like they're very much integrated into um, the stories of these vulnerable populations around the world. Um, the Knights of Columbus, the U- uh, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and then a Protestant organization, the Barnabas Fund, all uh, provide ways for um, people in the United States and elsewhere to give money uh, that goes directly into the hands of um, persecuted Christian minorities in Muslim countries. Um, and then, you know, t- do what I've done, which is bother the heck out of my local representatives um, and various other political leaders in the United States and local media, right? Write letters to the editor, contact your local representative, um, demand action, say, hey, you know, if, you're, if, we're gonna, if we're gonna have a conversation about immigration in the United States and who we let in and who we don't, Shouldn't we be putting these vulnerable Christian populations in places like Pakistan, Iraq, and Syria at the top of the list? I mean, uh, I mean it's hard to think of, uh, you know, a more uh, vulnerable and persecuted uh, and oppressed community than many of these Christians uh, yeah, are and, and what they deal with on a daily basis. No, it, it really is. And it's unbelievable stories, especially when you consider the broader international political implications. Like, these are our allies and yeah, I know that's way bigger than I plan to talk about, but there's prayer, of course, and we can do things like that. What has been your best strategy when trying to reach out to your congressman or bring it up with your local representative? We've written letters. We've gotten on the phone. Um, it's been surprising sometimes people like, uh, you know, typically, I think because Republicans in the culture wars have been more aligned with, you know, the re- religious movements in the United States. We've, we've mm-hmm. gotten more traction with Republicans, but sometimes Democrats can be surprising. My in-laws in Atlanta were able to get some traction with their Democratic representative. So I think sometimes it's yeah. just a matter is it's, it's just as simple as, you know, making the phone call, writing the letter, you know, asking to have a meeting with someone on their staff to talk about it. Or, hey, you know, uh, listeners can uh, can buy my book. And send it to their local yes. representative and say, "Hey, you know, this is this is something that's important uh, to your constituency, and I, I want you to do something about it." Absolutely. And if people want to pick up your book or learn more about your work, especially with the families you talked about, where can they find you? Sure. So my own website is caseychalk.com, and folks can see all the different places mm-hmm. I write for. Of course, you know, I write for, as you mentioned, I write for Catholic Exchange periodically, and I love to do it. Um, but uh, lots of other publications uh, there as well. New Oxford Review, Crisis Magazine, the American Conservative, The Federalist, and a host of others. So folks can read my writing there. I also have the, the links to where you can get my book. Of course, I uh, love to direct people to Sophia Institute's website and buy it directly from Sophia Institute. Um, since uh, that, you know, they're going to see they're more of the money than if you buy it off Amazon and, and Jeff Bezos gets to pocket it. So please do that. But also, <laughs> please write an Amazon review. 
um, because you know the more that reviews appear on Amazon, the uh, you know the, the more that we'll be able to generate interest in the plight of these vulnerable populations. Absolutely, we'll put all those links in the show notes. But Casey, thank you so much one for writing this book and bringing more attention to these stories. Uh, they're important stories that we do need to hear. And I also really want to thank you for coming on today's episode and sharing with us. Thank you so much, Michael. It was a pleasure to be with you. I, and I, I appreciate getting to see you in the flesh for the first time. <laughs> Agreed. Once more, that was Mr. Casey J. Chalk. You can find his book, The Persecuted, True Stories of Courageous Christians Living Their Faith in Muslim Lands. I really want to thank Casey for coming on today's show. I've always enjoyed working with him. I hope to have him back in the future when I can also have a little better audio quality to record some of our comments. But this is a subject, as I said, near and dear to my heart. Years ago, I spoke with Kevin Hartigan from Catholic Relief Services. Uh, we were talking specifically about Middle Eastern Christians who were being persecuted and the work he was doing. That was a really difficult interview, mostly because of the technology. We were having to Skype from Egypt and it was no good. I have a much better recording system and I still have trouble. But Kevin really opened my eyes in that interview to a lot of what's going on. I've tried to fundraise for a Catholic Near East Welfare Association. I do recommend them. Your own parishes might have resources. Feel free to look into those. Your own uh, diocese. A lot of dioceses do direct work through religious orders and things like that. This can really help people on the ground. We'll put some of those resources in. Uh, Casey has many, many resources on his website and through his connections and articles, so I highly recommend you use those. And if you pick up the book, you'll learn more about what you can do and have stories you can share. These are really powerful to have with people when you want to make people aware of what's going on. Something like a story, a personal struggle with someone you can relate with can really open your eyes to what's going on, how difficult their lives can be. So sharing these stories is very important. If you can share this on your social media or with your friends, I would appreciate that. If you have any questions or comments for me, hate mail, whatever you'd like, editor at catholicexchange.com is the way to get in touch with me. I still want to set up an 800 number for this. I don't know why. Uh, also, if you have resources yourself, if you work in any kind of charity, you're part of a religious order, and you're helping persecuted Christians, reach out to me so I can share these resources. I would really deeply appreciate that. With that, I think that's about all I can talk about on this subject before I get really impassioned and go off about how our allies keep betraying us and are hurting Christians. Yeah, I'm going to get upset about this subject. Uh, yeah, but please, if you can, look into it. At least share these stories. If you have any words for me, editor at catholicexchange.com is the way to do it one more time. And God love you all. Thank you again for listening all the way to the end. Have a lovely week. God bless.